Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com slash podcast. All right, let's get started. Today, I'm talking to Adam Christian, who is the CEO of Stateful.com. I love talking to early stage startup founders. And Stateful.com is a really cool startup. The basic idea, and of course, it's about developer experience, is to make your readme file executable. And they do this by being deeply integrated into VS Code, so everything just works. Back in the day, Adam used to work for Source Labs, where he picked up a ton of experience around community building and reaching out to developers. So let's get started. Adam, welcome to the Fireside with VoxGig podcast. It's great to have you on today. And as we've just realized, uh, we randomly met eight or so years ago in my hometown of Waterford, Ireland. Uh, so it's great to be talking again after having randomly remembered to be met in person. Yeah, uh, great memories of the early JS Comp days. That one definitely stands out. So fond memories of Ireland for sure. It was uh, yeah, it was it was great to have you guys over here. We uh, yeah, we were running conferences, not really knowing what we were doing. That conference was run in a medieval castle with three foot thick stone walls. Um, we were just trying to do workshops with no Wi Fi. Um, yeah, <laughs> things you learn running conferences. <laughs> Uh, I, okay. I think this is one of those experiences where I wound up with a bunch of people um, sitting on the grass around a, a big, beautiful tree, yeah. um, talking about features maybe coming to Node, and uh, I felt like that wound up actually being the best way to do that. Uh, okay, so let, let's talk about Stateful, and let's talk about um, kind of a, a, an interesting term you guys have coined, README Ops. So I'm not going. I'm going to stop talking and. You tell me what that is. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the primary uh, challenges that we've identified that continues to exist for developers is this thing where you wind up at a repo or you wind up back at a repo after some period of time and you're in this place where you have to get productive on this thing again. And, um, you know, having spent years doing developer tooling, um, we wound up saying like, there is this space here between like the human at the keyboard and this whole ecosystem of pipelines and DevOps stuff that has pushed everything out into the cloud where there's a person still interacting with a UI and a checked out repo. And what is this thing? And we found it sort of challenging um, for months to figure out what to call this and and nothing really seemed to work. And I was uh, pitching a candidate that we were uh, in the process of hiring and I explained this whole thing and I just said, what do you, what do you think this is? And he goes, well, obviously it's README operations. Uh, and, and I just love that because um, README is such a specific thing, but also such a loaded term with such a history that means a lot to developers, right? It's this interface to the code that you're trying to work with. and um, you know, even though our stuff works with any Markdown or MDX file in any repo, README Ops is the closest we can get to really clearly triggering those feelings in the developer that targets this really particular space that we're spending our time thinking about. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. And 
mean, that mirrors my own experience as a developer, right? You know, you're sitting in front of the README. And the thing you do, so far as I understand, is the examples in the README actually work. You can run them. Yeah, so the, the place that we're starting with ReadMeOps and we see such a big, cool ecosystem um, that we hope emerges from this. And that's, you know, in a large part why we're doing this in an open source way and a community focused way is that um, this space needs to be filled for different technologies and different kinds of documentation that live in repos and the CLI and in VS Code and other editors. So we, we're really, what we're trying to do is use RunMe, the VS Code extension, and, and the CLI as a place to start to invite people into that community. And right now, you know, to put it as simply as possible, um, if you have, uh, if you're in a repo, either in the CLI or in VS Code, and you use our tool uh, in VS Code, you can uh, parse and turn that uh, markdown file into a runnable notebook. and um, I know that historically notebooks and VS Code have been really popular with sort of data science and ML people. Um, but for the meantime, given the great built-in facilities in VS Code, we've found that that's a really nice vehicle for giving folks a really clear and understandable both editor and runnable experience for markdown files. And running, of course, means that you have the inputs and the outputs and um, environment, uh, environment uh, variables and config and secrets and all that kind of stuff. And so um, we want to get to a place where uh, that runnable notebook is the easiest, smartest, and best way for somebody to get their local environment into a productive place. So can you work with any readme file or do I as the, the dev, my open source project or my, or my SDK for my service, do I have to do that, do anything? Um, no. So I, I think sort of the beauty about this is that, you know, we, we parse Markdown and MDX. Uh, we take into account, you know, things like front matter. Um, and all we do is, so out of the box, the thing should render anything that's a, a runnable command um, should become runnable, right? Anything that's a shell command, for example, should become runnable. Um, and then we have a number of annotations that are transparent to Markdown renderers that, um, you know, you can inline with each command that sort of, um, you know, adds behavior, right, to how the thing runs, whether it's in the background process or whether, you know, you pop up the terminal or it's long running type thing. Um, and so it works out of the box, but then the code owner, you know, can, um, you know, tailor the behavior a little bit for people. Um, or if you're a user and you say, actually, I want this to behave differently right here, um, there is UI built into the notebook for for adding that stuff and it saves it back to Markdown so that you could check it in if you wanted to. Nice. Well, I, and, that, and that's the notebook concept, which is really, um, I've always been a little jealous of the the data data science people and their Jupyter notebooks because um, it is a, it is kind of a really nice DX, right? We find it to be a really um, sort of easily grokkable uh, experience, right? Because when you look at a Markdown file, um, you know, there are sort of style guides out there and there are norms and things like that. But when you put it into this runnable format, you start to see things like, okay, this this is the getting, you know, dependency setup section. This is the um, pinging API endpoints to validate that things work section. This is the 
you know, uh, run the tests and, and all that other sort of assertion stuff section. And so, you know, we're sort of uh, looking at tons of these files to make as many of them work well as possible. We're starting to get these, a lot of clarity um, around like, what are the different kinds of things people do? And of course, you know, there's many different, uh, there's the read me and contributing and all this other stuff. So we're also classifying this stuff to try to figure out what the relationships are. So as this thing grows, we can do smart things around all of them. And who, who, so who do you see as the primary, uh, I mean, does the, the end users, right, here are experiencing the README in, in a new way, um, but are you prim primarily interested in working with uh, open source coders now to make their projects more accessible, or are you starting to look at people who have SDKs or APIs? Yeah, that's a really great question and something that we've actually um you know been kind of thinking about and going back and forth on and i think you know right now out of the box um you know the devops the devops person or not devops person anybody trying to get their environment set up um the more complexity there i'd say right now the more sort of value you can get on of it right so if you're inside of a company and you need to you know provision a bunch of systems and um you know install a ton of dependencies um, so that you can interact with an app. Um, that's kind of been where we've been thinking, but recently it's become more clear that like just getting people into a place where they can do some work is really important for us. And then that involves the open source folks and, you know, potentially um, interacting with web components and things like that. So um, we built something called uh, the RunMe Launcher, which we're about to deploy a blog post on right now. But basically the idea is you can use deep links um, into VS Code so that you can have, you know, in your web page or whatever it is, you click a link, launches VS Code, checks the thing out, brings up the rendered notebook. And we think stuff like that, these on-ramps, can be really helpful for open source projects to get people into a place where they should be able to contribute, right? And you can sort of see where this goes, where if a, a potential contributor gets stuck running through the, 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 the runnable markdown that was called contributing MD, um, that you know, we could do things like help report those error messages to maintainers, or automate the way you log an issue, or whatever it is. So, the shorter answer to that is, we want to be really good at both, and we're working hard to try to prioritize things on both sort of ends of the spectrum, so that people in both those positions really clearly get value um, quickly. Yeah, uh, I can I can definitely think of a couple of scenarios where I would have found it useful. Um, with some of our clients, okay, so you have a scenario where there is a complex setup. It's 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 a private setup, right? It's a bunch of Docker files or whatever to get a particular system running. Um, and if there was a level of automation and documentation and support around that, that would be super useful. Um, the other one that I've just run into is we just finished a project for a client, and I think we had integrated about 15 different third-party services, which meant that we had to sit down, read 15 different readmes, documentation pages, API, 15 different ways of installing the SDK, 15 slightly different ways of authenticating or getting a key or whatever. Um, and it was kind of driving me nuts by the end of it because there's no, there's no, there's no sort of uh, tooling to help you get up and running 
you, you, you just have to dig around with all these different readmes, I guess. Um, so yeah, I, I can, I think I would have found it useful. But, you know, it's really early days and there's a lot of thinking going on around things like, you know, should a runnable notebook, you know, it knows a lot about your code base. It knows the operating system that it's running on. Um, you know, we could hide all commands that are for Windows if you're on a Mac or vice versa, right? Um, there's sort of more conventions that uh, the more structure there is around how people organize those files and how they name them and what they're meant to do, um, we could do smarter things with them. And I think one of the places that um, is on the very short-term roadmap for us is um, testing, right? BitRot is a huge problem for markdown files um, and you know all documentation, but we believe strongly, and I think one of the principles of this ReadMeOps thing is that your docs should live uh, close to your code so that there's a relationship there. And you know, the more we know about uh, the commands that are required and the way that these things are structured, the smarter we can do about, uh, smarter we can be about doing things like automated testing, right? So if you have a set of commands and a readme file, and you know, the first versions of this are gonna be ugly because we're gonna try to um, find ways to, you know, run through that readme in an automated way from a GitHub action or something. But um, as we get, you know a little bit more um, um, thoughtful about how we organize and annotate this stuff. We could actually get to a place where um, you know your Markdown documentation is running as part of your test suite with you doing very little, and we think that that's really where this should ultimately go. At least as a, a piece of the puzzle. Yeah, yeah. Because in my in some of my open source projects, <laughs> uh, you know, I struggle with documentation, but. I definitely want to have a situation where the code examples in the README are also unit tested and they're up to date. Um, and I've had to do, you know, come up with kind of manual hacks to do that when I've done it, and mostly I don't. Uh, so that would be good. That would be pretty cool. It is kind of an epidemic um, in in open source, especially. I mean, I'm sure it's a big problem inside of companies too, but. Half the time when I try to go hack on an open source library, for example, um, a lot of those steps to get to where you need to be um, no longer work, right? I mean, if you have a, you know, a project on GitHub, you see that there's constantly um, package updates uh, showing up as PRs and doesn't take very long before the thing doesn't work at all. And so um, what could be more important than people's ability to get the thing working, uh, in my opinion? Right, exactly. Um, well, okay, I'm kind of sold, right? <laughs> if you're a developer and you've suffered this pain, you should be as well. Uh, so we want to talk about developer relations. So I'm just going to bring it back to that. Um, because what I'm also interested in is, okay, you've got developer tooling. Makes sense. Um, but do you, and as a startup, do you have an uh, uh, explicit developer relations strategy um, or is it more organic in terms of building the community? Uh, I'm really interested in your in your thinking around how you're going to execute on developer relations. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, that, so during my time at Sauce, um, the, the learning here was really gradual and really important because um, at the end of the day, we were we were um, 
evangelizing a mantra, right? Which was um, uh, continuously integrate and continuously deploy your apps. And this is hard and here's why. Um, and so the place that we're at now is that um, I guess the new mantra that we're sort of evangelizing is your documentation should be treated the way your code is or better maybe even given how important it is and you know for me uh we saw other companies during our time at sauce go try to build an enterprise product and sell it to um you know heads of engineering and heads of test automation um and what we actually found to be really successful was for us to be physically out there in the world talking to developers who were um, passionate about um, quality and you know we're going to be the advocate for what we were trying to accomplish inside their organization um, and you know there's not there early on there wasn't a lot of those people out there but as time grew they got louder and, and they brought people with them and uh, there is a similarity in what we were doing at sauce and that we had test runners that were open source for you know every permutation of language and and uh, testing framework that people wanted to use and you know we were trying to standardize around a common api in a very complicated ecosystem and i think given that you know code bases are so complex and the technology stacks people are using and the and the systems that they're trying to integrate within the cloud um, is so vast that for us to really do this well we need to get people out there in the community who care about the quality of docs and, and the onboarding and uh, process of getting um, productive with repos and to have them help us understand and potentially contribute, but at least um, give us some of their time and thoughts and feelings to help us focus on the next big blocker while we try to tackle what we think is a pretty big thing. So in short, um, the community aspect of this all is our um, you know our single biggest priority at the moment maybe in competition with just execution on the on the product side but um we know how important it is for us to have a passionate community uh, contributing so we have invested heavily in our blog we are uh, spending a lot of time paying attention to discord and reaching out to people we're doing everything in an open source way and trying to communicate the things that we're doing when we're doing them and trying to when we you know put this stuff on the internet really paying close attention to the responses that we get from folks and trying to get them to engage more with us so that we can really tune where we're going yeah i'd like to talk a little bit more about the um the mechanics of doing that because i've struggled with struggled with it myself in the past i'm kind of interesting in how you actually make that happen uh it, it occurs to me that um you know if you compare that the time we last met, which must be eight years ago, maybe, um, the role of the developer advocate and the the idea of developer relations has really blossomed in that time. And it just occurs to me that anyone who is a developer advocate uh, is going to be super interested in specifically what you guys are doing. Um, and I just wonder, you know, sh should you guys be targeting that particular type of developer specifically rather than just developers in general? Uh, that developer advocates and open source maintainers, I would think. Yeah, you know, I think um, the 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 ramps and the um, 
sort of demo ability of what we're doing, I think lends itself really well to both tutorials and documentation and people standing on stages at conferences trying to get um, to a specific state that they can demo something else. And I think um, I would love to see a world where um, this whole, uh, you know, sort of bubblegum and chicken wire program that people go through um, to try to get something working to show it off is just a click. Uh, right. And so I think um, I would love it if uh, we had input from that community and and wound up being the default way that people uh, get to that place. Um, but I think it is really important for us to not forget about the fact that um, when you're sitting inside of, uh, you know, a company working on an app, um, there's a lot of internal systems that you need to interact with and provision and uh, that this automated testing story is really strong for everybody. Um, so it's it's really hard to pick and choose. And, and the way that we're approaching that is we're basically trying to put forth to the community what our next set of steps is on our roadmap. We recently put out a blog post about um, the road to testability for Run Me, right? Which is we want to do something, um, so I don't want to say quick and dirty, but sort of rudimentary that gets the point across to get people to engage with it. And we're in a place where we're just, uh, we're sort of experimentation driven. We're going to build cool stuff and we're going to put it out there. And if folks uh, pick it up and run with it, we'll do more there. And if they don't, we'll, we'll move on to the next one. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I want to talk a little bit about the mechanics of those interactions because uh, engagement with the community, marketing to developers, right? I put it in quotes, scare quotes. Um, is critical to what you guys are doing. Uh, but in terms of the day-to-day, I mean, do you guys run a content calendar? Do you allocate an hour a day to writing blog posts? What did, you know? How, take me through your strategy, and then how do you execute that tactically? Yeah, so I do not have a uh, any kind of a tr- traditional marketing background at all. I've been very... Uh, uninvolved in what people I think would call marketing, but I have been really involved in developer evangelism this whole time, uh, basically, and spent a lot of time at conferences and in the hallway talking to people after those conferences. So when the when the conference scene sort of disappeared during the ban- pandemic, that was a, sort of a scary moment for me because I sure. I didn't know any other way to reach folks really, um, other than you know reading comments on GitHub issues. Um, so we've had a lot of discussions about this recently, and I think the way that we're going to we're going to approach this is um, a schedule around content, and we want to be doing uh, a mix of uh, product roadmap related stuff, um, sort of maybe a little bit more uh, visionary or explorative kinds of things, and then um, peripheral uh, content around what's going on in the VS Code ecosystem and um, you know sort of the ephemeral environments. Uh, uh, ecosystem as an extension of that, as you know, code spaces lives in the cloud, and people um, like this idea of doing all of their development in you know standard environments off somewhere. And we also want to explore that. Um, and so there'll be a schedule of content that keeps coming out. Uh, we're going to try to make sure that that stuff shows up in um, smart but thoughtful places. But the CTA across all of this, you know, uh, sort of attention that we're trying to generate is going to be two things. One of them is um, try run me, tell us what you want and B, 
join Discord and talk to us. Uh, we just want touch points with people who care about this. Yeah, okay, so it's very direct, <clears throat> very hands-on community engagement, more than okay. more than kind of traditional marketing calendars, that type of thing. Well, yeah. And, and, and we, you know, doing this stuff out in the open, um, basically we're gonna be asking a lot of people, right? We're, we're gonna say we released this thing and um, we're gonna show up in your DMs or we're gonna show up in your Slack communities or we're gonna email you directly, however we can get to you. Um, to see if we can get you to try it and be really honest with us because we found that that's actually the only thing that matters in all of this product development stuff is um you know truthful responses around whether it adds value or not yeah. uh, and it's really hard we we are doing a few other things that i can't quite talk about yet um but we are investing significantly in this um in this goal of building a, a thriving community <laughs> Yeah, I have a couple of really badly documented open source node modules. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. Um, talk, about, talk about Stateful, the company, right? So obviously, the, you know, this is, it's, it seems to be an open source based product. Um, but tell me a little bit about Stateful and your journey and how you came to build this particular product. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's, um, boy, it feels like a long journey at this point. Um, my my initial conception of a product that needed to exist in the world was around. Um, I'm spending a lot of I was spending a lot of times in one on ones with engineers, and I was saying a lot of the same stuff, uh, which was, you know, um, how are you managing your time, and how how do you know whether you're making an impact, and you know, think about the correlation between your happiness and, you know, how productive you were. And so we went through a number of permutations of trying to um, build basically, a man, you know, an, an inbox for engineers around uh, managing their own productivity. Um, and we wound up in using VS Code as a sort of vehicle to inform to give us data that we could try to connect to those things to give to engineers, right? Basically automate your, your great manager engineer, engineering lead away. And, you know, we found that um, we built this product, we called it Strava for devs. It's a VS code extension. We put it out there into the world. Um, we got some really good feedback. We also got some very terrible feedback of people saying, why are you trying to gamify my coding? And why are you all up in my, uh, VS Code putting awards and boxes, places and things, and um, and we thought, why why don't people love this? Because we think it's really cool, but we have a hard time explaining exactly how this makes your life better um, in the way that uh, you know maybe somebody with a you know a health tracker on Apple Watch or something will look at it a couple of times and then put the thing in the drawer. Um, or an aura ring or something like that. And and so we kind of took a step back and it was a painful experience to pivot. Uh, as as you probably know, it's it's oh, yeah. emotionally challenging <laughs> to, to invest so much and have it not work. But the ultimate conclusion was uh, we need a pain pill. And looking back at building this whole app, what part of this was the hardest? Well, it was getting engineers at any particular time on any particular repo to a place where they can contribute and be productive. And why isn't this solved? And that led to this concept of a readme ops ecosystem. 
Yeah, so it sounds like a, it sounds like a fairly classic startup journey. Are you guys self-funded? Did did you take investment? We did take investment. Uh, we took investment from awesome people. Um, we took investment from Fly Ventures, which is based in Berlin, uh, and we took uh, money from uh, Four Rivers uh, Group uh, here in the Bay Area and. Um, Fred and Dan uh, are involved in the company and they're awesome people. So if you want to do deep tech, uh, I would recommend talking to those folks. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a heavy burden. Um, have, having been through it myself on, on a pivot, uh, when you have investors and you, you, you kind of have to think, what's the, you know, I've, I've got these fiduciary duties, right? Scary word. <laughs> um, no, gonna... I think like, <laughs> Yeah, how are we going to get to the best outcome for everyone, right? I, I think it's just been such a weird time, right? Like um, COVID followed by what's going on with the global economics. Um, you know, us as a dedicated bottoms-up uh, sort of product play, uh, which we, we've been committed to from the first day, um, is means that you have to get traction and you have to get really significant traction. And um, that means that, you know, you're not in a place where you're going to be able to generate revenue for a long time. And uh, that journey is scary. And um, those folks have seen the show before. And as a first time founder, I got to say, it was incredibly helpful to have people telling you that you're doing the right things and to just keep doing, you know, following your gut and making smart decisions and, Kind of leave the rest to the universe right because you can't control everything even though you'd like to yeah business is um business is kind of strange um you know when we met in previous lives um i, I co-founded a node.js consultancy at literally just the right time when node was taking off right um uh and the only reason i got into node in the first place is because um I used to be a Java coder, and my boss gave me an impossible project, which had to be done in, in a month, right? Six, six months' work in one month. Impossible in Java, just about possible in JavaScript, and Node 0.6, I think. Um, and then you have this random series of events that sudden you, where you suddenly end up hitting the market, and it works. Um, it's interesting. They say you know product market fit is not you know it when the market is pulling you, right? You're not pushing. Um, so you know, you kind of know it when you see it, right? Oh, I mean, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, looking back on the node wave, I think everybody sort of felt what was going on at the time, but it was hard. It was a little bit difficult to step back and, and really see, at least for me, what an incredible game changer it was. But as we, as we built for that ecosystem at Sauce, I mean, just in general, but also especially that the Node microphone was really loud. Um, you know, we we absolutely experienced the, the market pulling us. I mean, and we could not keep up, and it was years of really struggling to scale. And at the time, we were doing uh, everything in our own uh, infrastructure with you know uh, server, uh, servers in the data center and running out of IP addresses and all this kind of stuff, and it was sort of your classic, oh my gosh, how are we ever going to survive this sort of experience? And um, we certainly at Stateful are not there yet, but I would, I, you know, 
I, I'm terrified, but also sort of can't wait uh, and hope that we wind up in a place where we get to feel some of that again. Oh, yeah. It's a nice problem to have, right? And it's funny, I, I sometimes advise startups as well. And if you speak to people who haven't lived through that, even though they have a great product idea and a great business and a great team and good investors, you find yourself trying to convince them that it's real, that, that the magic can happen. Um, it's a funny, you have to kind of live this to really, to truly believe it's kind, of, it's kind of a weird thing. Yeah. And I mean, no, I think it took me, um, a couple of years after the Sasabs experience to really, I don't know, sort of appreciate, um, what, what a unique experience that is in the world. And, um, and now I, in a way I'm just sort of addicted to the startup thing because what an incredible thing to get to do in life right i mean it's a bit of a curse as well you know (laughs) (laughs) it's Uh, all of it yeah it's all of it we all have to be nuts but i think it's you know we also have to appreciate how special it is so i try to focus on that yeah it is a privilege to do what we do right it it definitely is um but hey you know uh the whole note thing that happened sort of kicked off 2011 2012 every Every 10 years, 10, 15 years max in this industry, things turn upside down. Uh, it's time for a new wave. I, I don't. I mean, I don't know what it's going to be. I, I mean, you know, there's a bunch of interesting stuff and machine learning and that sort of thing, but it doesn't feel the same. I'm still waiting to see what the, the actual next big thing is going to be. Yeah, and, you know, I think um, part of me wants to be you know, spending time speculating about around where things go in the future, this sort of next big wave. But um, also, I, I've i learned sort of the hard way that one foot in front of the other is is kind of the the more effective place for me to be. Um, but I do, I do think that, um, you know, we need to keep our, our eyes on the whole sort of ephemeral developer environment stuff. I think that's interesting, but still feels like you know, putting brand new running shoes on and I want my old running shoes that, that are comfortable for me. And that's my local dev environment. Um, and I, I, I also think that thinking about ways that, um, machine learning can augment, uh, some of the developer workflow that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. You know, I remember thinking back to, um, the the brittleness problem with writing automated tests was that like things are way more di- dynamic than anybody wants to believe and so writing integration tests that actually tell you something useful was and i think continues to be really hard yeah, and for us yeah yeah and, and and one thing that we're thinking about now is like okay what does fuzzy mean for developer documentation and what does that mean for testing right and what is data as how people use these notebooks how can that influence that? So sort of bringing it back um, to the, the whole quality realm, I guess. <laughs> I can't seem to get away from it. Yeah. And even if you don't, even if you don't have a specific answer right now, you, you guys are in the right space because interesting stuff is going to happen with this machine learning. Um, it's not quite there yet, but I mean, I've, I've used ChatGPT and actually use it for real stuff and it has been useful. Not, not to write code because... <laughs> So somebody, uh, I saw a tweet today. Somebody said that um, you know you, you set up one of these large language models to write some code for you, and you you get a hundred line solution to whatever. 
And then you have to go through it line by line the same way you would with a junior dev, right? Just to check everything. Um, but at the end of at the end of that process, you don't have a junior dev that you've helped grow that, that's becoming an asset to the organization. Um, you've just been tearing your hair out because the what the fucks per minute are too high. <laughs> so uh it still makes more sense to invest in the humans for the moment. I think so. And and Sebastian, my co-founder, who's been on this whole journey from the very beginning and um, has done a really good job of being a uh, calming presence and a creative uh, thinking presence, uh, continues to say, you know, we don't we don't need to have giant machine learning models to do this. Like we can do little neural nets uh, that are, you know, augmenting and adding value in a smart way without you know, trying to go all in on any one thing. And, and I think that's the, that's the way that I want to continue thinking about it is like, how can we use some of this technology in a subtle but really smart way to just make people's lives a little bit better often, you know? Yeah, and, and if you bundle together enough of these incremental improvements, you're, you, you, you know, you, you do end up with, some sort of step change. I certainly hope so. I mean, I've been coding since 97. And it's kind of the same as it ever was. Um, the servers are better. I don't get 4 a.m. calls, you know, because of serverless and stuff. But the actual day-to-day -day coding on the command line, it's kind of the same. Well, oh, the, the, the web inspectors are, are better than they used to be. <laughs> I used that code for yeah, we, we were joking about this not too long ago. We were doing a company offsite and um we were talking about how like you know the world, you know, uh you know, you look at the media out there on the internet talking about how um the world will never be the same again and none of us will have jobs uh because the, the AIs have, have changed everything. And then you get into a car and you can't figure out how to even put the letters one at a time into the GPS thing. And I just run into this stuff all over in life where I'm like, yeah, maybe, but you know what? Right now uh, it's people and their fingers, right? And so there's a lot of room between here and there where we can make things better. Um, so that's where yeah. I try to live. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, that's the thing. If, if you, if you look at the details of how, of how these large language model systems work, there, there does seem to be a fundamental upper bound in, in terms of what they can do. Um, you know, the, there's very convincing fuzzy content generation, but you kind of have to go to the next level. Yesterday I was writing a, a very tight little piece of code, parsing something. Um, and I, I was just thinking, you know, it's it's not like this code can just be pulled from various places of the internet and just and just thrown together because there isn't any redundancy in what I'm doing here. Every single variable counts. All the off by one errors that I've painfully solved, they all mattered. Um, and I, I just didn't see. It would be kind of scary if they could get to that level, but. I didn't see how you could write code like that without this, the proper semantic understanding. 
Yeah, I mean, I played with um, Copilot uh, from GitHub and VS Code, and um, I found often I would go with the autocomplete. It would be something really different than what I wanted, and I would wind up writing it my way anyway so that I could understand it uh, completely, you know, because just using whatever thing made me uncomfortable. And, you know, I think a lot of a lot of what we're talking about on a regular basis is not that we're, like, trying to reinvent uh, the universe. Um, we we know that developers and ourselves we're in our environment. We have it set up. We like our color scheme. We like the key bindings that we have. We we like things the way we like them. Uh, you know, configured and line lengths, all this kind of stuff. And like, say what you want. Sure, you can put it in a box. You can put it in the cloud. But it's really not um, one size fits all. And um, we're pretty much banking on that because we know how important that is to productivity and how little tiny things can really bug you um, and hinder that. And so um, that's our reality still, whether we want to believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. Uh, you, I mean, you, you guys are going to pursue a, it's a classic product led growth strategy, right? It's, it, you have to get the users that's on the ground first. That's right. Yep. We want to get folks using uh, installing the extension or the CLI and interacting with it. And, you know, it works in, in VS Code, of course, but VS Code is a web app, right? So code spaces in the cloud, you know, all the things. We we want to see this showing up everywhere as as a tool people use to get, get productive. So anything that we can do uh, or integrate with or whatever it is, you know, we want to hear it. Yeah, I'm gonna have to give it a. I'm gonna have to give it. I'm gonna have to give it a spin. Um, I have a, a I have a, a framework that, that we've we've been using we've been using for years, about ten years, a microservices thing. Um, it's got about got a community of about two hundred plugins. Um, you can imagine the state of the documentation. It's absolutely woeful. Um, for sure. This, will this solve all my problems? I wonder. Uh, I will. I'll well, I mean, I'll, I'll let you know. I think this is going to be one of those classic things where if we can get our hooks into folks and we can um, sort of do, um, you know, a pair effort where we, we invest some time and effort and, and folks do their, their side of it, we can sort of come together and, and knock down these, um, you know, sort of uh, issues one at a time, these roadblocks one at a time. And that's where we want to be. And we know that that's time consuming and it doesn't scale and, and, and all that, but that's, um, that's part of the learning process. And so we're happy to do that. So jump in Discord and let's figure it out. Yeah, one developer at a time. Cool. Okay. That's right. I think we'll I think we'll wrap it up there. Adam, thank you so much. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Was, I'm gonna I'm gonna It was it. a pleasure. All right. It was thank a pleasure. And I, I appreciate the chance to talk. So um look forward to what happens next. Okay. Take care. Good luck. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgig.com slash podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgig.com slash newsletter or follow our Twitter at voxgig. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.